The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we ask three of our favourite writers from the magazine to read out their pieces. In this week's episode, we hear from Professor Robert Toombs, the historian, about Canada's willingness to believe anything bad about itself. Then we hear from Jamie Blackett, a farmer who writes about the harms of wild camping. And finally, Tanya Gold reviews the new reopening of the Claridge's restaurant. First up is the historian Robert Toombs. Readers would doubtless find it hard to believe that the late Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh kidnapped and killed Indigenous children while on a state visit to Canada in 1964. Yet this story circulated for years in Canada, along with other horror stories of the rape, torture and murder of Indigenous children at the hands of depraved priests and nuns. The bodies, it was said, were thrown into furnaces or secretly buried at dead of night. These accusations were linked to boarding schools run by various religious bodies, first established in the 19th century and finally closed in the 1990s. A Truth and Reconciliation Commission was set up in 2008, and millions of dollars were given by the government to search for clandestine mass graves. None was found. Then, in 2021, a single survey of an orchard at Kamloops in British Columbia by a young anthropologist using ground-penetrating radar found disturbances in the ground, and this was taken as proof of a mass grave of hundreds of children. Soon other communities announced that they too had found forgotten cemeteries, and the media portrayed these as hidden mass graves, implying terrible crimes. Canada descended into a frenzy of allegation and public self-flagellation. Dozens of churches were vandalised or burnt down, and the Trudeau government ordered the national flag to be flown at half-mast for several months. The Pope apologised, as did the Archbishop of Canterbury. China denounced Canada at the UN. But no investigation has been made of the site at Kamloops, and no bodies have been found there. Yet sensationalist stories of abuse and murder have gained credence in official circles, or at least are not publicly contested. Investigation is hampered by a reluctance to hint at scepticism concerning accusations, survivors' truths, made by members of Indigenous communities who insist that inquiries should be led by Indigenous people and their knowledge keepers, not by the police. The highly activist Nationalist Centre for Truth and Reconciliation took control of much of the documentary evidence, which it has been unwilling to show to researchers. A moderate view would be that these schools were often sites of harshness and neglect, but there is also plenty of evidence of happy children and dedicated teachers. The schools were often asked for by local Indigenous communities. There is no proof of children being kidnapped and forced into them. Many were close to their homes and supported by their parents. Even in the recent past, nuanced discussion of the schools was possible, no longer. Those Indigenous leaders who formally praise their own school experiences are silent. The official story focuses solely on horrors. Nevertheless, 
several prominent and in the circumstances brave Canadian historians have expressed reason doubt. Careful record-keeping means that suggestions of thousands of missing children and unexplained deaths can be disproved. Old cemeteries that have lost their grave markers have been identified, but still no secret mass graves have been found. Far from there being relief that the most appalling fears appear groundless, a deadening cloak of silence has been thrown over the whole subject. The former executive director of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is pressing for an anti-colonial approach, making denialism subject to both civil and criminal sanctions. The Justice Minister says he's open to the idea. The deliberate vagueness is doubly intimidating. Would asking for the radar scans at Kamloops be denialism or pointing out that no human remains have been uncovered? We are used to denial of some controversial assertion being proclaimed a moral and intellectual offence. As far as I know, though, only Holocaust denial is a crime in some countries. Note the obvious difference. Evidence for the Holocaust is overwhelming, and denying it in good faith impossible. The situation in Canada is precisely the opposite. It is not denying, but rather sustaining these accusations in the absence of evidence that tests good faith. But there's a lot of money at stake. Hundreds of millions of dollars in compensation have been handed out to former schoolchildren. Ideology too. The schools symbolise a policy of integration, broadly followed until the 1960s, when full citizenship was offered to Indigenous peoples, as opposed to the present policy of maintaining them as separate ethnic groups in territorial reservations. Integration is now tantamount to genocide for many Liberals, so accusations that schools were literally institutions of genocide, killing and secretly burying thousands of children, is too powerful a story to be given up by those pursuing greater land rights, huge reparations and rewriting national history to promote separate nationhood. Britain's history wars are small beer by comparison. A statue toppled here, slogans scrawled there, misleading information given by our great museums. Nevertheless, Comparable processes can be seen on both sides of the Atlantic. Allegations of historic British iniquities are given automatic credence as institutions, whether through genuine belief or moral panic, hasten to acquiesce. Objections based on careful interpretation of evidence are almost invariably ignored. In 2019, Britain had its own burial scandal when a Channel 4 programme made by David Olusoga and presented by David Lammy MP charged the Imperial War Graves Commission with wholesale racism in its treatment of the bodies of non-white First World War soldiers, practising apartheid in death. Olusoga added on the BBC that Winston Churchill had deliberately signed off on this policy. A presumably panicky Commonwealth War Graves Commission produced a report accepting the claims and deploring the pervasive racism of contemporary imperial attitudes. A no less panicky Ministry of Defence expressed regret, and Boris Johnson rounded it off by saying he was deeply troubled that not all of our war dead were commemorated with equal care and reverence. Did any of them feel a duty to protect the reputation of their institutions and of Britain itself, rather than giving a green light to international accusations, including by China, of British racism? Apparently not. 
but Professor Nigel Bigger at Oxford did examine the evidence and found that the Imperial War Graves Commission was committed to the principle of the equal treatment of all the Empire's fallen troops, whatever the colour of their skin. The War Graves claim, like the Canadian allegations, was intended to create a scandal on a deeply emotive subject. When many ethnic minority groups are eager to emphasise their participation in Britain's wars as a buttress to their rightful claim to full national membership, the accusation that the bodies of their dead soldiers were disrespected is particularly hurtful and damaging. Though denialism is not yet illegal, academics such as Bigger who contest orthodoxy are sure to be publicly reviled by gaggles of their colleagues who try to intimidate and silence them. Attempts were made to sabotage his research project on the ethics of empire. Those of us old enough to be untouchable can speak our minds, but younger colleagues often tell us shamefacedly that they are constrained by concerns for their careers. They may be ostracised, seeing invitations to speak dry up, research funding applications fail, book contracts get cancelled, and the fruits of several years' work end up destroyed. The orthodoxy in schools, in museums and on television is always the same. Britain was racist in the past and so it is racist today. Producing evidence that this is untrue or exaggerated is heresy. So when the Independent Commission on Racial and Ethnic Disparities, set up by Kemi Badenoch as Equalities Minister, reported in 2021 that most of the disparities we examined often do not have their origins in racism. It was met with a flood of vitriol from activists. No matter that an earlier report by the EU and a later one by King's College London reached similar conclusions that Britain was among the least racist countries in Europe. Here, as in Canada, distortions of the past serve to create a distortion of the present. The Canadian case shows this in lurid form. Accusations of genocide and child murder, combined with threats of punishment for denialism, make whole areas of public policy impossible to discuss dispassionately and create a poisonous victimhood culture. The Canadian government is reported to spend as much now on subsidies to its indigenous minority as it does on defence. So huge interests are involved. Is the money properly spent? Is the policy of keeping certain ethnic groups largely dependent on welfare and with limited life choices either effective or ethical? The same questions could be asked in the United States and Australia, but in all three countries rational consideration is blighted by induced guilt about the past. What is at stake is not only intellectual freedom and unconstrained academic research, though these are certainly important enough. Even more important is the ability to conduct honest public discussion, examine policy and assess the true state of the nation. Those who try to stifle investigation are intent on manipulating our view of the past and creating myths and taboos to control power and policy in the present. Dispassionate historical scholarship can serve political rationality by contesting extreme or groundless claims, but such scholarship is under threat. Settler societies have the grave problem of dispossessed indigenous minorities which we do not. For that reason, history wars in America, Canada and Australia are far more serious and potentially damaging than in Britain. Nevertheless, even here, 
we risk encouraging a new generation to regard its country and its history as sources of shame, guilt and resentment. The real achievements of integration risk being undermined, and Putin can gleefully denounce the West's colonial crimes. That was Robert Toombs. And now, Jamie Blackett. It's not just bears that squat in the woods, as you'll discover if you ever have the pleasure of a visit from wild campers. Other disfigurements to the land have included scorched patches of grass, which luckily didn't become full-blown wildfires, branches severed from trees, presumably for wet firewood, stakes removed from young saplings, ditto, and the inevitable beer can and, inverted commas, disposable barbecue pyramid. I recently found a lacy magenta-coloured bodice hanging from a tree, but that may have been left by an even wilder breed of camper. So I have every sympathy for my fellow landowners who have the misfortune of eking out a living in the granite-strewn wastes of the Dartmoor National Park, where a legal challenge has just upheld the right to camp wildly without permission. Visitors can now camp overnight wherever they please after the Court of Appeal decided that a right to open-air recreation included setting up a tent and bedding down. As one campaigner from the charity The Stars Are For Everyone said, access to a night under the stars now does not rely on the whims of individual landowners but is owned by ordinary people. As though those who steward the land are somehow not ordinary and that they exist to frustrate the lives of those who are. In fact, few landowners would want to ban visitors outright. The warp and weft of rural living has always been enriched by a caste of hermits and eccentrics. In my childhood, there was an old lady named Miss Paulet, who would roam the highways and byways in a gypsy caravan pulled by a skewbald cob named Magpie that was nearly as old as her. She would occasionally call on my parents for a glass of sherry and a bath and once gave my father a piece of paper with the address of her next of kin scrawled on it, a marchioness with many acres of her own, in case she she was found dead one day. We have from time to time had tramps living in secluded parts of the estate and have had cordial relations with them. Here in Scotland there is, in fact, a centuries-old tradition of cattle drovers, displaced Jacobites and other outdoor types camping pretty much where they please. There has never been a law of trespass, despite attempts by the newly devolved executive to pretend that they had bestowed a right to roam. And most landowners were just fine with that, particularly as all sides tried to make it work, despite ever-increasing pressure from a growing population wanting access. Lately, however, camping etiquette has disintegrated. Rousseauism has taken hold of leftist imaginations in a way not seen since the 1840s. It expresses itself in a neo-romanticism of the rewilding movement and the land-reforming zeal of the Extinction Rebellion mob. Aims on by the likes of George Monbiot and Chris Packham, 
confrontational wild camping neatly combines both causes for any eco-activist wanting trouble. The national parks, which are increasingly trampling over their indigenous landowners' rights and livelihoods, provide benign environments where a sense of entitlement can be flaunted. Unlike national parks, in countries such as the United States or even continental neighbours like France, ours have always been settled. Farmers carved the mosaic of wild and agricultural land which became so noted for its beauty that it was protected. They need to continue to manage the countryside. The irony is that we are all supposed to be straining to halt the climate emergency and the biodiversity crisis. See Mombio Packham et al. The woods now bristle with regenerative cattle, posing yet another danger to campers turning up unannounced. Wild campers, who are by definition strangers, have no way of knowing whether the spot they have chosen to stake out is the last refuge of a natterjack toad or ghost orchid. If the authorities really thought about it, they would be supporting landowners and their attempts to channel the public onto paths and into campsites. Wildlife would then be disturbed as little as possible, and we would be less likely to suffer wildfires that turn our flora and fauna into atmospheric carbon. Any wild camping aficionado reading this will no doubt bristle with righteous indignation. They will be spluttering about codes of conduct and responsible access. And yes, there are many who come and go, leaving little more than a compressed patch on the grass where they pitch their tent. Every year, earnest young wild campers arrive on my land, full of gratitude and assurances, brandishing some shovels for, embarrassed cough, biological necessities. But even these well-meaning types have sometimes pitched under precarious dead trees, left standing for their benefits to the wildlife, which could have fallen at any time. Campers can avoid such dangers of the wild if only they speak to landowners first. That was Jamie Blackett, and finally, Tanya Gold. The BBC made a very odd documentary about the renovation of Claridge's, the Mayfair Hotel mega-build. They filmed a gog as the hotel grew eight new stories, three above and five below, between 2014 and 2021, while staying open. Guests slept in eight, unaware of Narnia doors to the building site. That Narnia is where guests aren't indicates what Claridge's employees cannot put into words without spontaneously combusting. Labourers dug the basement by hand and impersonated the artful dodger when management toured. The BBC described the new penthouse at length without mentioning that it is gross, with a grand piano in a glass box on a terrace like a Richard Claydman-themed nightmare. A roof was assembled off-site and stuck on as for a doll's house. The spa, which offers a facial treatment where the guest must wear a Darth Vader-style mask, flooded in a rainstorm. But amid the abyss, something has bloomed. Something always does. Claridge's has a perfect restaurant again, the kind which deserves its own Edwardian tribute fiction. I haven't eaten here since the self-conscious Ferrer and its ridiculous faux-rustic tableware. If you can afford these prices, there is no need to impersonate a hobbit so you can live with yourself. I am tired of restaurant in search of pumpkin patch. I wasn't tempted by its successor either, 
which was run by the equally self-conscious Daniel Hum, who serves tiny immigrant-inspired plates at 11 Madison Park in New York City. He left when management wouldn't let him go vegan. He has inflicted vegan on his New York City customers because he can't steal their private aircraft, and so now we have this. It indicates its lack of pretension with its name, which is Claridge's Restaurant. The plane soothes me, because truth, even truth as small as this, is soothing, particularly in Mayfair. It is a beautiful room, and it is opposite, I remind you, the loveliest ladies lose in London. They are art deco and faintly shabby. When I stare into the looking glass, I imagine I see Judy Garland and Princess Margaret staring back. Anything that stands against the Dubai aesthetic must be encouraged. The room is tall, wide and pale. A room for dining, not for assuming a tinny identity or speaking your rage in bad homeware. It is a British-style brasserie, which means that it thinks of the diner, not the chef and his relationship with his father. You are not at the mercy of a seething, unconscious writ in nut. I am told that Jeremy King, late of the Woolsey and the most gifted restaurateur of the age, is advising, and I sensed it in the welcome. Like all superb restaurants from Snack Shack to this, it treats the diner like an unwell baby. Good restaurants are, at heart, hospitals for people who are not ill. The food is perfect and, for what it is, well-priced. We pay £100 a head and gorge ourselves. We eat a glorious tomato salad, plated with obsession, a chicken with lemon stuffing, mashed carrot, mashed potato, a steak au poivre, Sussex strawberries, a dish of mushrooms I will remember always, a dish of English cheese with plum jam. It takes great skill to cook this simply. As a literary critic said of Biggles defies the swastika, five stars, no notes. My favourite story about Claridge's is that Dwight Eisenhower was stationed here in wartime. He hated it and fled to Teddington, then war. I wonder if he would have stayed for this. That was Tanya Gold. Thanks very much for listening to this episode, and if you enjoy the articles, do pick up an issue of The Spectator. I'm Cindy Yu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>